It is a glorious privilege we have this morning to come together on an occasion like this one, to have been blessed with the things in life that are as well as they are, to already have been able to lift our voices in song and to, in fact, collectively offer prayers unto the great God of heaven. Perhaps it would be well to begin the lesson by noting the thankfulness that our congregation has been blessed with, certainly over the last few days. So many who were involved in the Bible Bowl effort yesterday, as Brother Roger mentioned, it was truly a fantastic day as our young folks had been able to study from the books of the New Testament lessons that in fact not only shall be good for the time present, but throughout their lifetime, the coaches and the parents and the others of the congregation who are there to support. Certainly we appreciate each and every one. To our young folks, especially for your months as you've studied, to our coaches for your preparation of all those lessons. Hopefully in the next few weeks we'll have more to say in terms of appreciating and complimenting our young folks and others involved in that effort. But let them know how much we appreciate it and let them know how much we admire their labor and their work over the last certainly few months. We have been involved in studies over the last couple of Sundays Last Sunday, we looked rather interestingly at the nature of the pattern set before us in Hebrews 8, verse 5, and noted the imperative and vital character of the need to follow the pattern set forth in heaven. Today, though, as we come to a lesson entitled, Jesus' Death, why? We are, in fact, facing one of the most critical and one of the most interesting questions that may, in fact, be uttered from the lips of a human being. To begin that lesson, I'd ask you to think with me about some monumental events that may have happened over the course of human history. If you and I were to take a survey of historians and ask them, list for me some of the greatest events to ever transpire upon the face of this planet, I'm sure we would not get a consensus in the answers. At least over the recent years, we might list, well, the powerful invention of electricity and how that has impacted continents and mankind worldwide. Some might think to mention the thankful defeat of the Axis powers like Hitler in World War II. Others might list a certain reign of a ruler in ancient history, such as Alexander the Great, and how that so many diff different nations have been impacted by the culture and influence that he spread. Our interest, of course, today is not to discuss secular history. And yet, you and I, being knowledgeable and informed about the nature of the Word of God, perhaps would quickly say one of the most overwhelming events, certainly ranking in the top two, would be the death of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And as we contemplate that very thing today, I'd ask you to look with me over the next few moments, the entirety of our lesson about the nature of His death, why it had to be so, and try to achieve a better appreciation of the meaning of that death for you and me individually. To say that perhaps leads me to say that all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, detail specific matters concerning the nature of his death as well as this subsequent resurrection. And as we look at those accounts might we not immediately conclude that God desired to place four records of that event. Not just one, but four records of the event of the death of His Son. And yet, as we consider them, we are today going to ask why it had to be so. As we begin that, we need to turn back to the very beginning. For you see, the stage for the nature of that event at Calvary that occurred outside Jerusalem began back in the early two chapters of the book of Genesis. 
With that said, would you start the journey there with me this morning? When God fashioned the human family, there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we receive a rather masterful appreciation of the state in which man was made. God fashioned him pure, innocent, sinless. There was no guilt in his life, no need to feel ashamed of anything, for the last verse of chapter 2 informs us they were naked and were not ashamed. All the while, we do learn, though, rather quickly that God made man in his image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, In the image of God made he him, male and female made he them. Later in Genesis 5, 1, made in the very likeness of the God of heaven. Not as though we physically look like him, of course, but rather we can see that we are free moral agents. We have the capacity to do many of the things that God can do. Not that we can do them as perfect as he, but you and I can love. We can exhibit concern, compassion, care. Our heart can be tenderly touched by the matters related to another. God has all of that able to happen for and to him as well. But might we observe in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the impressive fact that a part of being made in the image and likeness of God was we have a self-will, volition, creatures of choice. God said, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. It might be well to note they were not made as robots. They were made with the capability of understanding the thing that God had said, but it was up to them with diligence and devotion to pursue in commandment that which he had said. They understood it well, for Eve in Genesis 3 verses 1 to 3 exactly quoted what the Lord had said to them. But as the tempter had therein appeared, she succumbed to the temptation, and so did Adam. At that point, everything changed. For they had engaged in sin. They had violated the will of God. They had transgressed His commandment. Maybe it would be worthy to note that the divine commentary of 1 John 3, 4 is so appropriate. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. What law? God's law. Adam and Eve knew God's law, but they chose to disobey it. They chose to refuse to submit to it. They thus became sinners. Sin entered the human family. At this point, at this point, their entire relationship was different. Prior, they had been sinless, whole, complete, and pure. They, in fact, had a powerful, intimate relationship with God. And yet, once sin had entered the world, they were separated from Him. For God does not countenance sinfulness in the sense of maintaining fellowship with it. Psalm chapter 5, Habakkuk 1.13. All the while, doesn't that help us to see that when mankind sinned, he in fact engaged in something that he could no longer take care of himself. Why is that true? In what way can we understand that? Well, I've listed some other passages for your consideration. Sin, it's a shameful thing. Jeremiah Speaking, of course, in the very character of God said in Jeremiah 3.25, We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. 
And what's more, sin is absolute foolishness. There's no good reason for it. Never has been and never will be. The very last verse of the book of Hosea. Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them for the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk therein, but the transgressor shall fall therein. Understanding then that when sin brought such shamefulness, disgrace, rebellion, and foolishness into the human family, we are now in a position to ask, what are the consequences? We might remember God had said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Penalty of death was associated with sin. It was then, and hasn't it remained so? Could you note with me so many ways in which that's revisited? In Ezekiel 18.20, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, The wages of sin is death. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, We learn there that lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We understand that Adam and Eve did not die physically that day, but they were spiritually separated from their Maker. Spiritually then, in such a situation that their relationship was marred, tarnished, and unwhole. No wonder in Ephesians 2 verse 1, dead in trespasses and sins, absolutely. Adam and Eve died the day they sinned. They died spiritually. We can see that sin, by virtue of these New Testament passages, has the same consequence today as it ever had. One can only then ask, since all mankind are subject to this, what are we to do? We can't lay all the blame simply on Adam and Eve, for you and I are also sinners. What was it that we read in Romans 3.23? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Didn't Solomon declare in 1 Kings 8.46, There is no man that sinneth not? We have arrived at a rather dramatic problem. In the very dawn of creation, Adam and Eve hadn't been here very long, and yet they engaged in sin, separating themselves from God. Could that relationship with God ever be reconciled? Could it ever be reestablished? Could it ever again exist as it once had? We must look past Genesis chapter 3 to find that answer. In fact, as we begin to see some of the things to be noted, perhaps the question of Job 9 verse 2 would be so appropriate. Can a man be just with God? Let us look for the answer to that question. Perhaps it would go without saying that given the existence of sin, we are now in need of asking what can be done about it. If you and I are sinners and as such are separated from the God who made us and who loves us and who inhabits eternity, Isaiah 57, 15, then in order to be with Him, somehow the sin has to be taken care of. In what way is that done? We learn immediately throughout the sacred pages of God's holy word that God not only is a God of love, but a God of justice. He is just, J-U-S-T. Moses declared in Deuteronomy 32, 4, Just and faithful art thou. That was spoken when his people had not yet crossed the Jordan River and inhabited the Promised Land, and yet he stated that, God, you are just. Doesn't that remind us of that blessed refrain in Revelation 15, where there one more time, Just and holy are you. 
You see, in the sense that man has sinned, God in his justice cannot overlook it. He cannot cover it, pretend it doesn't exist. There is a need to rightfully and appropriately handle or take care of that sin. Only in that way could there ever again be a reconciled relationship. Only again could any of us, any sinner, ever make approach to the God of heaven. As we consider the means by which that's done, may we thus say, in light of our earlier comment, that God will not countenance sin. The only way is to somehow remit it. That word remit, what does that mean? We encounter it in the sacred scriptures on more than one occasion. What does the word remit mean? I've listed a thought for your consideration. That Greek word that's translated remit means to pardon, to forgive. We thus see that sin that you and I have committed, that sin that Adam and Eve had committed, there was a need for its forgiveness. There was a need for it to be pardoned. We're perhaps familiar with that idea of pardon so very well, for we see that done by way of judges in our court system and quite often executives. The president of our nation has the privilege of executive pardon. He can, for instance, set aside and decree as fair and forgiven any activities that someone may have done. He has that power. Sometimes our presidents use it with regard to their predecessors as, for instance, Gerald Ford did with regard to Richard Nixon. He granted him executive pardon in which he could not be tried for whatever took place during his presidency. Pardon means that has forgiven in the sense that it stands just now and right. Sin needs to be remitted. As you can see at the very bottom of that, in what way can that happen? Is the remission of sin something that occurs just because I wish it to or because I want it to? Or is there some desired and mandated sequence of events that must lead to it? The Bible answers that question. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 It is thus absolutely required that blood is involved in the remission of sin, period. That immediately leads us to ask and to note the power of the word expiation. We might look upon that as a fancy term when really it isn't. That word simply means something that is accomplished to appease one who has been wronged. In our sin, God has been wronged. It was His law we violated. It was His law that has been transgressed. He, in the sense of being wrong, you and I are in need of doing something to appease him. Only he can specify what that is. He has affirmed it involves blood. What about blood? Let us see what next may be said. As we think about the nature of blood, we know there are only two types known to the human family. There's the blood of animals and there's the blood of humans. That's it. There are no other varieties or types of blood known to you and me. Let us then ask, is it possible for the blood of an animal to be utilized in the process of expiation, forgiveness of sin. In the Old Testament, that often took place in type, did it not? In fact, at the tabernacle, gallons and gallons of blood were shed from bullocks and goats and sheep and animals of various types in the interest of obtaining expiation. But all the while, we learned something dramatic. 
for when the inspired Hebrew writer informs us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 4, that never could the conscience be made perfect by the offering of those animal sacrifices. And the reason was simple. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Hence, we've learned that that type blood will not accomplish the need of remission. We now must turn to the other type. What about human blood? Could we offer a human sacrifice? Could we take a child or a neighbor or a friend or a member of our family? We remember that in Genesis 22, God told Abraham to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Is that then the means for us to obtain remission? God forbid. For we learn immediately something very special. What else is true about a sacrifice? We might remember that in Deuteronomy 17 verse 1, God expressly said, Every sacrifice offered for the character of this matter must be spotless and blemishless. That is to say, Israel did not have the prerogative of taking a sick bullock or a lamed animal and offering that as a sacrifice. God wouldn't accept it. The sacrifice needed to be a male, a male animal, and it needed to be blemishless. What's the principle? Or that is to say, what is the object lesson for you and me? You and I are sinners, and hence we are not blemishless. Even if we offered a human sacrifice, that would not remit sin. Sacrifices need to be perfect. Sacrifices, if they're to obtain that end, need to be completely whole, and they need to be absolutely spotless. It would seem then that as human beings, you and I are in a terrible position. We are sinners. Animal blood cannot remit sin, and human blood can't either. What other options are there? There is no other kind of blood. It's at this point that might we know the God of heaven stepped in with, with a dramatic initiative and accomplished for you and for me what we never could have accomplished for ourselves. As we just noted, we couldn't offer blood for our own sins, for that blood is not blemishless. God looked down upon the human family in dramatic and tender mercy, marvelous grace and powerful love. And he dispatched his own son to this planet to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. I've listed a few texts for your consideration. Let us just look at a few of them, consider them in passing. Isn't it a dramatic and amazing thing to see the love of God dramatically shown to us in these verses? In Romans 5, verse number 6, Notice that there Paul said, speaking of Christ, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Why did he die? For the ungodly. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, we yet read again, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul, what is that? God made Christ to be sin for me. You see, I'm the one that knew sin. He didn't. Our blessed Savior lived a perfect and spotlessly sinless life. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, in fact, in words that are truly remarkable in their force and in their thrust, for we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. 
Never once did the Savior succumb to sin. Never once did he allow temptation to reach the point where it became sin in his life. Those occasions in Matthew 4 are but just a few of the temptations that he faced. And every time he responded with it is written and finally the devil was sent packing. He had met a foe he could not beat. In consideration of those points, look at some other verses. You see, Jesus could fulfill that role of a blemishless, spotless sacrifice, but that isn't all. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, we see that again, speaking of Christ, Peter said he suffered for sins once, the just for the unjust. We were the ones unjust. He was the one just, and yet he suffered for my sins and for yours. Furthermore, might we remember Hebrews 7, verse 27, Near the end of that seventh chapter of the Hebrew letter, the inspired writer makes note of the fact that yet again, once, he suffered for the nature of humanity's sins. And furthermore, his sacrifice involved but one suffering. That is to say, one sacrifice for the entirety of all sins. Two chapters later in Hebrews 9, verses 26 and 28, we learn that so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He bore the sins of many. We are beginning to see these passages reach such a dramatic and powerful conclusion. God sent his son to accomplish the remission of sins. His blood would be shed. His blood as a sinless sacrifice would be shed. And in that way, perhaps God could in fact remit or forgive those sins. But we aren't quite finished. Let's look further. In 1 Peter 2, verses 22 to 24, we learn that again, on the tree, in his body, he suffered for sins. There was no guile in his mouth, and he was the perfect ideal example in all matters. But isn't it significant? He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Friend, Outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, there was a man nailed to a cross. My sins were on his shoulders, and so were yours. Our sins sent him there. It was for that fact that he had nails driven in his hands and in his feet. It was because of that fact he had a crown of thorns pressed down on his head and the blood gushed down his face and his back. He was beaten virtually senseless in his back as the blood flowed therefrom after the scourging of John 19.1. Jesus did that because of my sin and because of yours. Oh, the enormity, the magnitude of sin. That was the only way it could be remitted. Animals' could, blood can't remit it. Human blood can't remit it. Christ's blood could. Perhaps the last set of texts, let us revisit one of the most famous chapters in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, let us read a selected few verses for now. Specifically in that chapter, let us begin reading in verse 4. Speaking of Christ, it says, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, 
and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It nearly brings a tear to your eye when you think that God loved you and me that much. We were in a hopeless condition without Christ. Never would heaven have been possible for us. Every one of us would have been destined for an eternal devil's hell. For we were sinners and there was nothing we could do about it. And yet he dipped the great pen of his love in the character of the son of his son and sent him to this earth. And when he shed his blood on the cross, he bore my iniquities and yours. He bore my sins and yours and that's what drove him there. From the very time that he was born, placed in that manger there in Bethlehem of Judea, the cross was in his future. That was the mission. That was his objective. That was the goal of his existence here. And yet he faced that with great power, never shirked from the responsibility. John 6, 38 reminds us there when Jesus said, I came to do the Father's will. That will involved him being a sacrifice for human sin. What a touching story. What a powerful scene. So far we have thus, I think, reached the conclusion that Jesus, in his death, paid the price for my sins and yours. There's perhaps, though, another question that might be asked. We are aware today that individuals die in a variety of ways. Some die of old age simply because the body wears out. Others die in accidents, perhaps due to a car or some other serious situation. We remember, though, that Jesus didn't die of old age. He didn't die because he was in an accident. He died by crucifixion. And that's the last part of our lesson this morning. Does the Bible give us any clues as to why the death had to be so painful, so gruesome, so terribly filled with anxiety? For that would only heighten our appreciation for what God did for us. There are a number of passages that at least basically relate to it. Let us, in fact, look at them somewhat interestingly as we close our lesson this morning. In noting that Jesus died, we have already learned that there was no other way for human sin to be remitted other than by His death. But doesn't that hasten us to ask, what then about the nature of that death? Let us revisit Isaiah 53 yet, yet again. Earlier this morning in our reading, we remember that Joy read for us from verse 11 of that chapter. And there are other verses too that would be worthy of our consideration. Looking back to it, let me lay some emphasis, if I might, on the wording as it appears in that verse we read before. Verse 5, speaking of Christ, He was wounded for our transgressions. When Jesus then suffered the beating that he did, in the agony of the garden there on the night prior to his crucifixion, in the events surrounding the early morning hours when Herod and others mocked him and reviled him so, stripped his clothes from him and laughed at him, claiming him to be a king, all the while when the various events took place and finally they bowed the scepter mockingly before him, hailing him as king, and then finally, they threw the cross on his back and began to walk with him to Calvary. All the while, as those events unfold before our eyes, the wounding, the difficulties, the pain, that was because of my transgressions and yours. Perhaps if you're of the habit of underlining or making notes in your Bible, notice the possessive character of the adjective. 
It doesn't say he was wounded for the transgressions. He said for our transgressions. It's personal. I sent Jesus to the cross. My activities when I sin, when I don't do what God wants me to do, James 4.17, when I purposefully do that which I ought not to do, Romans chapter 7, that sin, send him to the cross. But that isn't all. He was bruised for our iniquities. One more time, that possessive adjective, our. When Jesus thus suffered so, he was crushed, and that's the Hebrew term, bruised. He was crushed in spirit, the character of his body so terribly mutilated and beaten because of my iniquities and because of yours as well. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. For you and me, it is a difficult thing to perhaps imagine the scourging that Pilate laid upon him. I don't know if you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that came out about, I guess, three years ago now, two and a half years ago, something like that. There's a scene in that movie in which the scourging is portrayed. If you did, I would not be shocked if you had to turn away and was unable to watch it. To see these strong, powerfully mighty men take an instrument made of iron with cords therein that have in it often pieces of metal, pieces of perhaps of glass, but something that would absolutely cut open the skin. And to see them strike the back of a helpless man over and over and over again, 30, 40, 100 times. We remember in the Old Testament, a Jew couldn't be beaten more than 40 times. The Romans didn't pay any attention to Jewish law. They beat Christ till he was virtually senseless. Blood as it poured forth from his back. It's no wonder he was so weak. He fell under the load of the cross. He'd already lost so much blood, he only lived six hours on the cross. It was not unusual for men to live days on that cross. Christ didn't even make it six hours. You see, our Savior had already suffered so much. And why? Because of my sin. Because of your sin. God loved us enough to send his own son to the cross. But notice what else is in this text. Finally, with his stripes, we are healed. What a glorious message it is to be found as the verse closes. You and I were the ones in need of healing. He had no sin to be healed from. He'd never sinned. He'd never violated the law of his Father. He lived in perfect harmony with him, and yet he loved you and me enough to divest himself of all the glory of heaven, to live in the nature as of a man, and to undergo what he did. And by that process, upon proper application to my life and yours, you and I can be healed. That closes the picture to some extent because we stated earlier the need was reconciliation, spiritually healing. Here we have it. By his stripes, we are healed. We can come back to him, enjoy fellowship with God. We can know the power and beauty and promise of the hope awaiting those who are the righteous. But as the chapter marches forward, might we notice another passage that's to be found especially in verse 11. Specifically, he, namely verse 11, he, speaking of God, shall see of the travail of his soul. That second he is referring to Christ. God shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The beautiful thought of satisfaction. You and I were apart from God in sin. 
when God looked upon his son, the nature of the blood that he shed, God would be satisfied for the price of sin. Sins could be remitted. Sins could be forgiven. Sins could be pardoned. And isn't it amazing? By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. You and I are the blessed ones referred to there. Those who throughout the ages have had their sins remitted by the nature of what the travail was that God was satisfied by in the character of his son. And no wonder as the verse closes it says, For he shall bear their iniquities. You and I can see that this story of the Bible is extremely touching. It should in fact cause us over and over to never be ingracious toward God in our prayer life to thank Him over and over for allowing His Son to do this. No wonder we read in Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9, Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Thus the question that might well be asked, and the summary set of statements that we might present today. Jesus was crucified, of course, because we can see that there was a need for a deliberate shedding of blood. The accidental shedding of blood wasn't sufficient. Remember, in the Old Testament, the priest had to slit the throat of those animals. The blood had to be a deliberate shedding of blood for the purpose of remission. It wasn't possible for the Lord to die of old age and that be enough. It wasn't possible for him to die of an accident and that be enough. Jesus stated in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, I lay my life down and I have power to take it again. He voluntarily died for you and me. He voluntarily shed his blood, undergoing the scourging, the beating, the whipping, the mocking, the reviling, all of it, knowing full well he did it voluntarily for you and me. The scene then that unfolds before us leads us to notice that God's love so powerful, so magnificent, so great in magnitude. As we summarize perhaps the lesson, putting the final pieces of the puzzle together, it's fair to conclude it this way. Why did Jesus die first? There was sin. All of us are guilty of that, but there was sin. And in order for there to be any remission of that sin, there had to be a blood sacrifice. Animal blood won't do. Human blood won't do either. The magnificent nature of the initiative of God sent His Son to do for us what never we could do for ourselves. Thus, that aids us to appreciate the why of His death. As far as the why of the crucifixion, why did the death have to be in such a fashion as that? There had to be a deliberate shedding of blood. When that Roman soldier pierced the gentle side of Christ in John 19.34, forthwith came forth blood and water, his blood was shed deliberately. And in the shedding of that blood, there was the fountain for cleansing opened outside Jerusalem that fulfills exactly the prophecy of Zechariah 13.1. Hundreds of years prior to the event, God told Zechariah, there shall come a time when outside the wall of Jerusalem, a fountain for cleansing shall be opened. I wonder what that was. When Christ shed his blood, they had taken him to Golgotha, Calvary just outside the walls, and his blood was shed and the fountain for cleansing at that time was opened. And praise be unto God, it hadn't been closed. 
any of us who apply the blood of Christ to our life can exhibit the beautiful nature of having a reconciliation to God. To have those sins remitted, washed away, and taken forevermore from us. The power and promise of the New Testament fully is toward that end. Today, then, are you a Christian? Have you allowed the blood of Christ to touch your life, to wash the sins away? Only in baptism do we reach His blood. Nowhere does the Bible ever inform us that it's reached at belief, in simply a feeling of the heart, in simply a character of repentance or a verbal statement of any type. The one and only time in which we exactly and specifically are told is in Galatians 3, we contact His blood in the watery grave of baptism. Today, if you've never been baptized, if you've never then had your sins washed away because of that fact, take care of it today. God loved you enough to allow His Son to die that way for you. If we could be of assistance to you in your aid of returning to Him, perhaps after having been a Christian, we need to do that by prayer. We need to do that by beseeching the prayers of many on your behalf. We could aid you in doing that today. Brother Harold has chosen a hymn of invitation, and if we could help you, please let us know that. We'd be happy to help in any way we can so that you can avail yourself of the crucifixion of Jesus and the blood that he shed for you. If we could help you now, will you not let us know that while together we stand and while we sing?